Well, let's do this. We are going to we're going to finish up this portion of the series that we've been on. And so I just want to go back a little bit. Remember, we have been in this series called The New Man for a while now. And what we're talking about is understanding what happens to an individual at the time that they are born again. And remember, born again is Jesus' words, not my words, okay? But the concept is, and, it's, and putting it simply without spending a lot of time rehashing stuff, is that when we are born again, that that old man, that old spirit man, that sinful nature died on the cross with Christ. That's what scripture said. And then three days later was resurrected with him. Therefore, we are made righteous in him. The key is in him. It's not believing that he died. It's not believing that he resurrected. It is putting our faith, our hope, and trust in him. You can think and believe whatever you want. See, we're getting past the point of simply agreeing that the scriptures are true. We are believing the word of God. And we have to get there in order to see these things manifest that God wants to do in the earth today. Because if you remember, as we've talked about this, is that not only does that moment uh, allow us into heaven, if you will. That's our ticket into heaven, for lack of a better term, okay? I don't want to generalize it that much, but you guys are following what I'm saying. But it's so much more than that. Because when we're born again, he doesn't just say, okay, you're good. Good luck with the rest of your life. He gives us a job. In that moment, because prior to that, prior to us being born again, it is not our responsibility to go into the world and preach the gospel, right? Why is it not? Because we're not even born again. Like, we don't care about the gospel. In fact, we're kind of anti-gospel if you want to be truthful about it. But what happened when he created Adam and he put the spirit inside of Adam? He said, hey, get to work. Tend to garden and keep it. He gave him a job before he gave him a family. Think about that for a minute. There's a principle that's going on here. When we're born again, now you and I are in the ranks of the army of God, if you will. And now we are to go in to all the world, preach the gospel. But here's the thing. Why do we do it and how do we do it? Because it's easy to say that. It's so easy to just get lost in the, in the things. You know, just like this song. We're singing this song. You're worthy of it all, right? We'll say that till we're blue in the face. But if we truly believe those words and not simply agree with them, that means we'll give him all. All. What is all? All is all, right? Not real complicated. I know it's a play on words. Not really. Guys, give him all. Like what in your life belongs to you and not him? It should be nothing. But we all have something that we keep back from God. Because in the American culture that we have today, we'll call it the Western church, is that we simply, when we give our lives to Christ, we don't really want to sacrifice and give everything to him. We just want to keep doing what we're doing and mix in a little Jesus time. We want to take, okay, you know, if this pen was Jesus, we're like, okay, I'm good, doing all right, I'm going to stick him in my back pocket. Okay, now I'm good. I've got Jesus, right? Go around, ask somebody what happens when they die. doesn't matter if they're a believer or not. They'll say, well, you go to heaven or hell. Most of the time, they'll say that, depending on where they are. And you say, okay, that's great. How do you get to heaven? They're like, oh, well, if you're a good person and stuff, you know, whatever. They'll make up something. And you say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? They can't answer that question. We, we cannot be a church that just simply adds Jesus to our life. We have to be a church so consumed with Jesus that everything else follows suit. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. I know we've read this nearly every week, but I can't get past it. Starting in verse 12, we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, the love of Christ, it forces us to do this, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves." 
but for him who died for them and rose again. Them are you and I. We are the them. He died for us. He rose again for us. But if we gave our life to him, so did we. We are not that same person. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. How can they know him that way? They were with him. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, and this is the explanation of it, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? He just told us. He's given it to us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, bringing us back to him. So now then you can say, therefore, or because of, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For we for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now here's the question. If we're ambassadors for Christ, and it's as though God were pleading through us on Christ's behalf, how much of your life to the world is pleading to them on behalf of Christ that they need to come to him? This is a question we all must answer. We have to look in the mirror and say, what am I doing that's truly making your word known? The problem we have today, you know whose responsibility it is to spread the, 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 the message of Christ? It's the pastors. It's the missionaries. It's the, the evangelists, right? Just tell them to turn on TBN. They'll hear something good there, right? Well, maybe. Probably not, but they might. Guys, this is to all of us. Written for all of us. I mean, this is the thing, is that we just want to throw a little Jesus into our life, just mix it up there, but we want to hang on to everything else. But the thing is, is that he's called us to a higher place, to so much more. And not only has he called us there, and this is the important part, he's equipped us to do so. By equipping us with what? The Holy Spirit, which is what we've been talking about. The baptism in the Holy Spirit. To recap quickly, we have... We've talked about this, how there are three baptisms mentioned in the Bible. Uh, there's the Holy Spirit baptizing us into Christ, that moment that we are born again. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 talks about this, as well as other places. That we are baptized into Christ. We are immersed into Christ. We are now made whole, which is what we just read. We are new. And then, of course, there's the baptism in water, which is done by whom? A disciple does that. Any person who is a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, can baptize somebody in water, which is simply a sign. We are now aligning ourselves to the world with God, saying, I am following Jesus. It's a way that we express it to the world. But the third and the most important, as you have seen, is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's so important that it's mentioned in all four Gospels. The only thing outside of the birth death and resurrection of Jesus is the fact that one will come and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with power. Who else could it be but Jesus? Jesus himself does this. This is secondary to our, our, new, our conversion experience, if you will. Secondary not meaning it has to be a second event, meaning that it is just not one and the same. In other words, it's what we receive the Spirit of God when we're born again. But when we're endued with power on high, now we're equipped 
to go into all the world. You guys following what I'm saying? You picking up what I'm putting down? Okay, good, because we need to get past this. Now, we saw this as we went through the entire book of Acts last week. I know that was a little bit longer than normal, but it was so important how this promise of the Spirit given from the Father is the fulfillment. We saw that in Acts 11. We saw in Acts 2 where Jesus said, listen, disciples, I'm getting ready to go. This is Acts 1. He said, here's what I need you to do. I need you to hang out in Jerusalem for 10 more days. Remember, it's the Feast of Pentecost. So they had to stay in Jerusalem for that. I want you to stay here. I know I told you to go, but now I want you to wait before you go because it's important. You need to be equipped. So I want you to hang out here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what do we see in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit comes upon them, that they begin praying in other tongues. There's 120 of them. We see the people from all over that's hearing them. They don't know what's going on. They're confused. They're like, how can these guys be speaking our language? Aren't they Galileans? Which means they're a bunch of country bumpkins. They're not educated. They don't know nothing. And so how are they doing? How do we hear them singing the praises of God? in our own languages so they're confused and one of them a brilliant man says hey i bet you they're drunk right makes sense i mean to be fair if we're walking around and we hear some guy just a bunch of people hollering out gibberish what are we thinking eh, they hit it a little early today right and then peter peter stands up and says this is not they're not drunk like you suppose this is what the prophet joel spoke about and he goes on how your young men will see visions your old men will dream dreams and how the holy spirit will be poured on them and he says it's for you and your generations and all who come after that and guess what folks we're the all that was chapter two but then we get into get into chapter eight chapter nine chapter ten i mean we, we we go on we see with cornelius we see all of these guys where the holy spirit comes upon them and they're equipped with power and they go out and it's like man this is incredible but you can see that in one way or another this is not the same experience as them being just simply born again this is something different i mean for heaven's sake why when philip leads these people to christ do they send peter and john later to go in and pray for them and lay hands on them to receive the holy spirit if it's one and the same that's not necessary guys and the point is is that it's not but it's important because this is god's way of equipping us to carry out what he has called us to do and if i ask anybody in this room are you willing and wanting to do what god called you to do the answer would be yes the question would be, are you equipped to do it, number one? And number two, are you really willing to lay it all out there? Because I tell you what, folks, the ministry can be painful, and it can be frustrating, it can be ugly, it can be dirty. But what are you willing to give up for God? Because he gave it all up for us. So here's the thing. We need, we're going to look at today briefly. What are the results of this baptism in the Holy Spirit that we talk about? And then how do we receive it? Those are two things that we want to look upon. Now, briefly talking about this, we saw this last week as we went through the book of Acts, is that we saw that there was times that they laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and there was other times where they were just standing there and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. That tells me what? There's one of two ways we can do this, right? Piece of cake, not that complicated, okay? Let's not put things in there. Let's not add some church doctrine to it. Let's just follow what the scripture says. So what are the results of it? How do we receive it? Okay, now we saw in Acts chapter 2, Peter stand up and boldly proclaim in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's the place that just 50 days prior to that, they killed this guy, this Jesus guy. And Peter's the same guy that when a little girl came up and questioned, like, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? He cusses at her and says, I don't think so. And suddenly he's going to stand up and 3,000 people give their lives to the Lord. That's number one. Right? There's this boldness on him suddenly, like he gets it. He knows it. There's nothing going to keep him back. But let's look at chapter 3, real quick. 
Starting in verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Remember, this is right after chapter 2. So they're leaving the upper room, now they're going out. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask for alms for those who entered the temple. You know, I remember back in the 90s when they said they were lame, they just thought he wasn't cool. Like, you know, he's kind of a dorky guy. Lame means he can't walk now. So anyway, all right, moving on. Tough crap. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. He wanted some money. He needed something. This is what he does. He's begging. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do, I, what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked, entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the same Peter that denied Christ to the little girl. What didn't he do? He didn't pray, said, Lord, if it be thy will, make this man whole. He didn't even pray for him. He commanded it. He looked and said, hey, stand up. He reaches his hand down there, pulls him up. What happens? The guy stands up. And then he just goes solemnly, oh, thank you, Lord, be it that that was your will to heal me. No, man, the guy's bouncing all over the place. Wouldn't you? Imagine from the from your time of your birth, you're stuck in a wheelchair, you've never stood, and some guy with the power of the Holy Spirit reaches out, picks you up, and now you're standing. I think you're going to be a little enthusiastic. But the thing here is, what was it? It was in the name of Jesus. Obviously, it was the power of the Holy Spirit. And then what happens to the people that see him? They're filled with wonder and amazement. Why? This guy has been sitting here his entire life, pretty much, begging for money. Well, let's go on. Verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. All the people, suddenly, probably in the temple, in there doing their business, what they got to do, come running out to see what is going on. And when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently as us? As though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk. Okay, so what did Peter just say? Hey guys, it ain't me. There's nothing special here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and you denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Pause there for a minute. Who else denied him? Peter did. Right? But he was forgiven of that. Jesus forgave him, right? So he's over it. That old stuff is behind him. Because when Jesus breathed that, said, receive the Holy Spirit, that new man entered into his body. So that old stuff, irrelevant. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we were all witnesses. What is a witness? One who saw. We saw him die and we saw him alive again. We saw it. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and you know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. What is it that made him whole? Faith in him. How do we become born again? Faith 
in him. How do we receive that? It's by grace. It's through faith in Christ alone. How do we receive healing? By faith, by grace, through faith in him alone. It's the same concept. And that's what I want you to see today because this is important. Because we're always trying to figure out, how, how are we going to do this? I'm going to go pray for somebody. If I say it this way, will it work? If I say it this way, maybe it won't work. You know, i got to do this, that, and the other thing. Man, forget that. It is by grace through faith. If, we, if salvation and healing are one and the same, taken care of at the atonement of the cross, that according to Isaiah 52 and 53 it is, and reiterated in Matthew chapter 8 when he went around healing all who were sick, and he said this is by the words of Isaiah that he might be fulfilled, that by his stripes we are healed, then it is received the same way that we receive salvation. Yes? Do you see it? Do you believe it? Don't agree with me. Don't nod your head if you're not ready to believe it. But he's in perfect soundness. Well, let's go on. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Because remember, what are we looking? A result of this baptism in the Holy Spirit. Okay? And we're just going to go through a number of these. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. How many is many? I don't know. It didn't give us a number, but it's a bunch. And they were all with one accord on Solomon's porch. So they're right on the edge of the temple, right? Same, same area. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Why is that? Because they're watching this. Here's people preaching the gospel and not just saying it, they're demonstrating it. So that they brought the sick out into streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed, not some in fact, there's a movement going on with the disciples and the power of the Holy Spirit that it is getting around so much that they're saying, hey, he's going to be going down this road tomorrow. Let's just drag him out here. Beds and couches. How'd that be? That's like a parade, right? Kind of a redneck parade if there's couches sitting on the front lawns, but whatever. But all were healed. All who were oppressed by unclean spirits is gone. Why? The authority is inside of them, given to them by Christ, empowered on them by the Holy Spirit. Do you ever wonder why they didn't do this before? Do you ever wonder why Jesus didn't get them started early? Because they needed this. They needed to have this. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, he did great wonders and signs among the people. Then wrote... Then there arose some of what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, Syrians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, who is Stephen? He's not one of the apostles. Stephen was a deacon determined by the people. They were some of the Hellenist Jews. You see that previously in Acts 6 because the apostles said, listen, we're, we're kind of busy doing all this other stuff. We need to be focused on the word and prayer. So they get these other guys to help out. And guess what? They laid hands on them. And guess what? They were full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith and power. Are you full of faith? I bet you are. But are you full of power? You should be. Because what did he do? Great wonders and signs. Against, and guess what? You don't read much about Stephen past this point. I mean, you, there's kind of a major thing coming up where he didn't make it. But he's full of faith and power. And the people weren't able to resist the wisdom, which means the words that he's saying, and the Spirit coming upon them. 
Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Who's Philip? He's a nothing. He's one of these deacons, right? When I say nothing, the Bible was not written about him. It wasn't written by him. He's kind of a secondary figure. He's that guy that gets a credit in the movie, but he had maybe three lines like, uh, you'll appreciate it. These pretzels are making me thirsty, right? Seinfeld line, guys. Come on. You're better than that. Thus saith the Lord, help you, bless you. Okay. Guys, here he is. What I'm, what I'm showing you is that this is going around. This is what's written down. Who do you, what is happening with the multitudes of people? I'll bet it's the same thing. Why? Because this is, the Holy Spirit isn't poured upon church leaders. He's poured upon his people. Okay? Well, let's go on. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydia. Saints, being believers. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, I don't know how you say that, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ, the Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Then he rose immediately, so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Like, this is almost said in passing because it's becoming so commonplace at this point. Jesus, the Messiah, he heals you. Get up. Let's go. Make your bed. Acts 14, verse 8. And Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet, was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb. We keep seeing these same things over and over. Who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And what did he do? He leaped. He walked. Man, how did he do this? Power of the Holy Spirit. We see Peter baptizing the Spirit. We see Paul baptizing the Spirit. It's going on and on and on. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Now here's the word and we're going to look into this more in depth later on but this word anointed we always think that you can feel the anointing we always think that the anointing falls in here the anointing is a setting aside for service essentially is what it is but when he says he anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit you could change that word to baptize Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not perform one miracle until the moment of his baptism when he comes out and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and stays. And from that day on, he got after it. Why did Jesus do nothing before that? Why wasn't Jesus that entire 33 years of his life out there doing ministry? Why? I don't know exactly. But I know from the moment that he got started, it was a result of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing that he tells us to do. We know what Jesus was doing. And I'll bet you everybody in here would say, I want to be just like Jesus. Here's the reality. In truth, we don't. Because to be just like Jesus, that means that what you're doing is you're proclaiming that message in everything that you do. Because that's what Jesus did. He used examples of the world around him. He used examples when he was meeting with people that, you know, really he shouldn't have been hanging with. The, the Samaritan woman, as an example. Eating with tax collectors. You're not supposed to do that. There are people that aren't godly enough for us to go and, and minister to. And then he was out there doing the work. But more importantly, he was willing to lay down his life for the work that the Father and he set aside to do. Are you 
Well, here's the problem. We all say that we're willing to die for God. A bigger question is, are you willing to live for him? Because if everybody died for him, there'd be no one left to live for him. And the truth is, is the church today, we're not living for Christ. We just keep adding him to our life, a little bit at a time, right? When he says that, go and sell all and follow me, he meant it. You see, the thing is with Jesus, he was out there doing the work of the ministry, giving his example of this ministry of reconciliation. Why? He told them that your sins are forgiven. It drove the Pharisees nuts. How can you say this? Well, which is easier, say get up and walk or that your sins are forgiven? Because only God could forgive sins. They were missing the fact that God was standing in front of them. But Jesus was out there doing all sorts of stuff. Look what John chapter 20 says, verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Which book? Book John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What is John telling us? There are other signs that were, that were done in the presence of the disciple. They wrote these down that you can believe that Jesus is, what's the Christ? Not his last name. He is the Messiah, his, the anointed one. That believing you may have life in his name. How do we have life? There's one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, it starts with that. It's life in his name. How can we believe that? By these great signs and wonder, confirming that he was the Messiah. Remember the four messianic miracles that they were waiting for that only the Messiah himself could perform. But look down a little further. John chapter 21, verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies of these things. Who's that? That's John. And wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So somebody else is writing this ending, okay? This isn't John writing about himself. But how do they know that these, this testimony is true? There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I mean, wrap your head around that. We are getting a small snippet of what Jesus did. Because they fit him in a book. And he's saying this wouldn't be possible. Guys, we got to get our head around this. What did Jesus come to do? Destroy the work of the devil. How did he do it? He took sin from the midst of him. Upon himself. And so, with all of that, when we see this, we see the examples of the baptism of the Spirit. What happens with the apostles. And we know what happens from there. I mean, if you've ever read the book of Acts or, or been in church for any amount of time, you see how the world was just spread out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what? It was not friendly to do so. Remember, not only in Jerusalem do you have Judaism run by the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were not pro-Christianity, because Paul was out ready to kill Christians. He had the blessing of them. But even more so than that is that the rest of the world were worshiping all sorts of gods. You see Paul addressing them as he's going out to all these Gentile nations and getting all over the place, having to tear down the idea that other gods are possible. Guys, it wasn't like they just walked around and said, hey, Jesus is Lord. Hey, that sounds great. I'll take some of that. No. He would, Paul was stoned. He was chased out of town. I mean, he had to be snuck out at different times, but he knew it going into it. He knew what he was going to have to do. Why were they so bold? Because they were confident. Because they'd been equipped. You see, imagine, if you will, us sending a U.S. soldier out there into the middle of the fighting and say, listen, we need you to go out there and need you to do this. We've got a task for you to do. But we're not giving you a walkie-talkie, and we're not giving you a gun, and we're not giving you any ammo, because you wouldn't need it without a gun, and we're not going to give you any armor. You're just going to kind of run out there, and I just need you to do it. 
what's going to happen to that guy? He ain't going to last long, right? Unless his name's Jason Bourne, then he might. But he's not going to last long because he's ill-equipped. Why does the military spend so much time training and so much money training these people? Why do they spend 8 to 12 weeks and nothing but getting in shape and learning to follow orders? Why do they take another 2 to 3 months, sometimes longer, training for a specific field? Because when they get out there, they need to be ready to go. They're not throwing them the wolves. They're not saying, hey, get out there, good luck. They're being equipped and prepared. So here's the thing. If Jesus gave us the ministry of reconciliation, don't you think that we ought to be equipped and prepared? I mean, don't you? Here's the thing. Is I don't want to be one of those Christians that just simply talks about Jesus, that he's not so real in my life that he doesn't own everything that is mine, that it all belongs to him, that he says, I need you to give this to this person or do that for this person, that I'm not willing to do it. That I'm not willing to get uncomfortable in life in order to minister to somebody and tell them about the truth. How much do you have to hate somebody who's going to hell to not tell them about there's a better way and there is a Messiah that died for them? How much do you have to hate somebody? And I'm using that word hate because if we don't love them enough to tell them the truth, then obviously we hate them. And around us every day is somebody dying. Somebody going to spend eternity separated from God. And what if words from us could make the difference. How did the disciples get so bold? Why is Peter so different? Why is Paul completely turning from being one of the higher-ups? He's, he's, he's like working his way up to the top of the, the, the religious leaders of that day to go a completely different direction to follow after the way. Because he's, there's something that happens. They're equipped, they're empowered. But what happens to us in that moment? Well, look what Jesus says. In John 14, verse 12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than he, these will he do, because I go to my Father. What works is he talking about? Every one of the miracles, even the ones that aren't written down. That the, the world couldn't contain the books if they were written down by, one by one. He says greater works. That's not greater as in more spectacular, that's greater in number. Why? Jesus did his in three years. How many of us have fallen in Christ for at least three years that have not held up our end of the bargain? I mean, if Jesus gave his life for us, don't you think we owe him something? We didn't earn that salvation. He says, it's a free gift. I give it to you. All you got to do is take out and receive it. But his Holy Spirit was a free gift. All we got to do is take out and receive it. Well, look at Mark 16, starting in verse 9. Now, this is the end of the book of Mark. Jesus, again, getting ready to go up to heaven. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Just wait. It says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, what's the first day? It's Sunday. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. It's in the book of Luke. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. What's that talking about? That's the Emmaus Road, guys. We spent a year talking about that. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Why did he do that? Because he told them he was going to rise. So not only did they not believe the witnesses, but they obviously did not believe Jesus either. And he said to them, this is right after he rebukes them, 
Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Okay? So he says, when you're preaching out in the world, he, that individual who believes, will be saved. All right? Let's go on. And these signs will follow those who believe. Who are the those who believe? We often read ourselves into this. Oh, he's talking about us. Those who believe are the individual who have turned their life to Christ as a result of the already made disciples going into all the world and preaching the gospel. And he said these signs will follow those people who are new converts, if you will. For lack of a better term, we'll put it that way. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Amen. It's the end of the book. These are the individuals. So let me ask you something. Does it matter how long you've been walking with the Lord to have these signs follow you? Nope, has nothing to do with it. Not a single thing. We seem to think that, well, you know, maybe when I, when I learn a, bit, a little bit more, maybe I'll be more spiritual, or, or maybe if I've done enough good things, then I'll be able to do this kind of stuff. That is not what it says. And it also, if you notice, it says, will cast out demons, not might. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Not might. It doesn't say, they'll lay hands on the sick, and if it's the Lord's will, they'll get better. But if it's not, they won't. I mean, guys, think about it. I know this seems kind of like elementary to it in a sense, but this is doctrines that we hold, and where do we get them from? It's not from the Bible. If it ain't coming from the Word, then it really needs to be tossed out. It's got to be grounded in that. There's so much here, guys. Look at Acts chapter 4. Start in verse 24. So when they, heard that they, that, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nation rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So he's using these guys. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants with all boldness that they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. How's it done? In the name. Who's it done for? The disciples. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Who prayed that prayer? The disciples. Who was filled with the Holy Spirit? The disciples. It says they were filled with the Spirit. What happened? The building shook. Now, you may think that's just, a, oh, that's a, it's either hyperbole of some sort, or that's just something that happened then. Guys, I can read you stuff throughout church history since uh, in the 14th, 15th century, and even later, where they were all together praying together, and they said the building shook. In the, the journal of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, talks about all these healings that were taking place and how that people would fall down when they were praying and that they would speak in these tongues and how there were times that they were praying and the entire building would shake. Is it just happening in the Bible? No. 
You see, we like to compartmentalize God and the Holy Spirit. If he could do it then, he can do it now. Now, you may ask the question, what's the point of shaking a building? I don't know. Maybe it's dusty. I have no idea. But I'm not going to sit there and question the power of God. So how do we receive this Holy Spirit? What, would we all agree, if we could just get to the point where we just look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I want everything that you have for me. I want all your promises. I want everything. Because I feel compelled to do your work. I want it all. Not for my sake, but for your sake. Not because I'm trying to build me a platform, because I'm trying to make you known. That when I go out there and I do these things, that I'm doing it for you, and that the world can see you in it. This Jesus that was killed, he did this, not me. Let's look at Luke chapter 11 in verse 9. He said, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks, they receive. And he who seeks, he'll find. To him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, Will you give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will you offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How do we receive it? We ask him. Well, that's complicated. I mean, imagine if your kid comes up into your house, whether he's grown or not, doesn't matter. And he wants to borrow your car. Most of you are going to say yes. How do you get it? You just ask, right? Like, we got to understand the things of God are simple. We make them complex. I don't know about you guys, but I want everything that God has. And I want it for a reason. You see, when we talk about money, and money's a touchy subject when you get in churches today. I've seen people storm out of the back of service when you start talking about tithing, heaven forbid. But when we start talking about money, people like, they, they, they shut down because we're talking about giving because all we're thinking about is, why are you trying to get something from me? And the reality is, the only thing I care about money for is how can we further the work of the gospel? That's all I care about. It makes no difference to me on what we do with it or anything like that outside of how can we reach more people with it. How can we, can we expand these ministries and help and, and reach the lost? When it comes to the things of God, we like to compartmentalize anything. I'll take a little of this, a little of that, and stuff like that. But don't give me that Holy Spirit. That's weird. People are weird. Holy Spirit's not. People are really weird. Guys, the reason I'm saying this is that we need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I have spent three weeks showing you how it works and who it's done by. Not only that, I've shown you that it's extremely biblical. Because I didn't get up here and just give you examples through church history or examples of what this person says. I give you examples straight out of the Bible. And I don't know about you, but for me, I want everything that God has for me. I want to be able to go out there and pray for people and watch them rise up and walk. I've seen people healed. I've seen a lot of people healed. I've gone and prayed for them, and they got up. I prayed for them from a distance, and they get up. I've seen other people do it. Why? Because I'm just simply being obedient. But we have to be full of the Holy Spirit. 